Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Rocco Despirito is headed to Connecticut at the end of the month, and we'll take any excuse to catch up with the James Beard award-winning chef. Coming up this hour, you'll get a preview of the Sun Wine and Food Fest at Mohegan Sun with chefs Rocco Despirito and Adam Young of Sift Bake Shop and Mystic. And I'll be at the fest too. I'm really looking forward to feeding the food lovers of Connecticut. Before we get to what the chefs are presenting at the fest, we wanted to spend some time getting to know our guests and learn a little bit about their culinary journeys. First up, Chef Rocco. Rocco Despirito, thank you so much for joining Seasoned. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I am uh, getting my congas out. And I'm getting them set up. (laughs) Plum, he mentions congas because both of you make fantastic pizza. And someone gave me a tip that to work with the dough, you should lightly tap it like a conga. That would would do something to the dough. I cannot tell you with complete honesty that it did anything to my pizza dough. But it's still a nice way to talk about pizza and dough and congas. It's a fantastic descriptive way of talking about it. And it sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) It actually was. Rocco, your career is vast. Uh, You have so much experience in the culinary world, but I wonder if you wouldn't mind taking us back for our listeners and talk a little bit about who your first food influences were and when that was. I'm happy to take you back. I, you know, I thought we were going to keep it into the 20th and 21st century, though. I want to go back all the way. 1640, there was a... (laughs) Back Uh, when they... Had to put together a fire in the woods. I started very young, so I've been doing this for a long time. There were many influences in my life, some I didn't realize until later on. I had no idea how much of an influence my family was until I was 35. And then I realized, oh, that's why. That explains the palate. That explains everything. That explains my love for food, for hospitality, for entertaining, for cooking, holiday celebration. All of it comes from this you know, very large family of uh, Italian-Americans who stubbornly held on to their traditions in the United States and passed them on to me. But there was a man named Sal who was a massive influence on me at a very young age. And um, he was the, uh, I guess I was the lucky, I was the lucky kid who got chosen. And he was the uh, unlucky employer who had to, who had to let me um play stickball in the courthouse across the street during work hours with his kids. Um, it was, it was a summer job in a pizzeria in Queens and he ended up teaching me, you know, so many things that I needed to know for the rest of my life in cooking. It's like the book, you know, everything you need to, to learn, you learn in kindergarten. It was sort of like everything I need to learn about cooking. I learned in a pizzeria in Queens when I was 11 years old. Uh, most of it was about being cordial and generous and kind and, uh, how there's no there's no level of generosity that's too much in in our business, and uh, he was you know gracious and warm and uh, paternal and protective, and uh, that's exactly what a chef needs to be when you're running a, a team of people uh, in a kitchen and restaurant. You really need to sort of treat it like family, and I learned all those things really really young. Uh, and so he was enormous influence on me, more than I even realized uh, at a very young age. I went to work with him because uh, my mom and I had, I guess, the equivalent of, of um, a rap battle. I don't know. We were we were fighting with each other. And she finally told me to go to work and uh, earn my own money if I wanted to buy you know, rock and roll music. So I did that. And I ended up in the pizzeria. It's funny, Chef, how you tell those stories about being 
you know, back in the day that your descriptive words are using there, paternal and, and, and humble and nice. I think you left out a couple. Um, you have to be a psychologist. You have to be a handyman. You have to be a sales broker. It's, it's remarkable how many skills it takes to be running a restaurant like that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Because people themselves are their own tool. Chef, to this day, I think I should have gone to refrigeration school <laughs> instead of cooking school. <laughs> I think it would have served everyone in my orbit much more than the skills I actually know. Because I am uh, always trying to fix refrigeration. I'm not sure how, why, but do you find yourself always fixing equipment? Are you kidding me? The last thing I ever want to hear is, well, the condenser is gone. God, come yeah. on. <laughs> Rocco, up until that point where you um, were under the tutelage of this Sal from Queens, what was your food experience like up until that point? Were you, did your mom have an easy time feeding you? Were there types of foods that you liked or didn't like? I don't want to fall into the Italian cliche of you're a nonna and your mother fed you meatballs and, and macaroni on Sunday. So, Oh, I, I fully deserve that description. <laughs> I, I am the cliche uh, 100% and I'm totally fine with it because it's it's a great experience without without question and without reservation. I can re I recommend it to anyone who has <laughs> access to it. I don't think I don't think it exists anymore, unfortunately, but um, I ate pretty much anything my mom cooked and it was a wide variety of foods. Uh, lots of different Italian foods. I remember our pizza uh, never had cheese on it. Now, I think that's because that's how they made it in the town where my mom grew up. Um, I think cheese was also very expensive. So I'm pretty sure that had something to do with it. But it was just tomato sauce and bread or pizza dough and uh, sometimes anchovies. Can you imagine how popular that was with the kids in uh, in my neighborhood? Hey, would you like some pizza with anchovies on it? <laughs> I would bring that to school and be banished, be banished to the, uh, the courtyard outside. But the funny thing about where I, where I grew up is I also grew up in one of the most densely populated areas of New York, Queens. And I was able to try foods from so many different uh, cultural backgrounds in my neighborhood. And my mom was very adventurous. So I definitely had to eat a lot of the food that she cooked. But we were uh, she was OK leaving the house and and trying out, you know, Chinese food, Jamaican food, Korean food, and on and on and on. So, so by the time I was 14 and moving on to high school, I, I'd been exposed to a lot of international cuisine and really was really thrilled by it. So is this the stuff that kind of made you decide, hey, you know what, let's go to CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. I'm an alumni as well. Let me go there and really immerse myself in food. Or was it, let me work in restaurants for a while, then go there. It's funny. Um, the the decision to go to the CIA, I think, came from a dare. Uh, a, a, a guy named Jimmy, who was a sous chef at a restaurant I was working at, was going to the CIA and he made fun of me constantly because back then that's what you did. You just made fun of people you love for some reason. I still do it. The kitchen bullying system worked, but it was really tough. But it made you, you know, it pushed you to do uh, try bigger and better things. Anyway, he he kept telling me I'd never get in. I I wasn't good enough to go. I should pick another career. I it was it was he was relentless. So I I think I did it just to prove him wrong. But it ended up being a very good decision for me because I loved the Culinary Institute of America. It was the perfect amount of um, uh, schooling plus work because at the CIA you're you're in class, but you're also running kitchens simultaneously. So it does mirror uh, you know professional. Uh, chef life. So, you know, you're working 12 to 14 hours a day 
working a lot was a really, really good thing for me. Using up my time working and focusing on cooking was really, really uh, therapeutic for me. So I think that's why I went, but I, I ended up loving it from, from day one. I remember uh, Chef Sonnen Schmidt, if you went, I don't know if he was still there when you went. Uh, he was there when I was there. Yep, he was. Yeah, yeah. He taught he he taught us class the first day. Taught us what the word mise en place yep. was, and uh, I was hooked, man. They tied their neckerchief so tight; it was so <laughs> cool. It felt like such an elite squad. You know, I felt like I was a Navy SEAL. Yep. I loved every minute of it, and now it's so much better than it was back then. There's it's massive, vast right? campus, and yeah, and they have oh. a pool and a bar and a campus, and yeah, and they're brewing beer. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Uh, just for those of you who don't know, mise en place, which Chef is talking about there, it's one of the terms that gets beaten to your head as a chef. It means everything's in its place. So you have everything ready to go before you start cooking because, you know, you don't want to get it ready while you're cooking. Have it ready before you start. Yeah, CIA was a great spot for me. I agree with you, Chef. I, I had lots of experience. I went to CIA. I had no idea what a brunoise was, but I found out when I got out of school, that's for sure. Yeah, after cutting buckets and buckets of brunoise, <laughs> I'm sure you're, you're at least your hands <laughs> knew what they were. Um, and now the word mise is basically slang for any kind of prepped food. Everybody knows what Mies is, uh, you know, spelled M-E-E-Z. Have your Mies. Rocco, so we've got a, a Sal in your story. We've got a Jimmy in your story. We've yeah, got this yeah, yeah. Sh- chef with a Bavarian last name that I cannot pronounce who was your instructor. Uh, Sonnenschmidt, Sonnenschmidt. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got it, got it, yeah. And then somewhere along the line, you decide to cook, make a profession, and you come up with your first ever cookbook, Flavor, which we're coming on the 20th anniversary, so you did it when you were like nine, essentially. (laughs) But I have a distinct memory of seeing this book and thinking, first of all, who is this guy? What is he doing? You've come so far. What was your intent when you made that cookbook 20 years ago? And when you look back now, did that intent come to fruition? That was the fast 20 years, guys. Let me tell you. Wow. Um, So I don't know that I had an intent. I was told by a number of people who were frequenting my restaurant that I should write a book and I didn't understand why. And I really wasn't sure it was a good idea. I I thought, why do I need to write a book? I, I, you know, I'm here cooking. There's really no reason to write the book. You can just come into my restaurant if you want to try my food and my recipes. And then a very smart uh, publisher who turned out to be one of my best customers, who I thought was a doctor, but was a publisher of cookbooks, was publishing Jamie Oliver and Nigella Lawson at the time, told me your book is, you know, sort of your record, you know, part of your legacy. It's a record of what you're doing at a certain time. And, you know, 20 years from now, you'll be really happy that you wrote it and you should take the time to do it. And what you're doing is super unique and you need to get it down because you'll forget. And he was right about all of it. And I can't remember the stuff I cooked back then. I couldn't recreate a recipe if I tried. Good thing I cook with instinct instead of recipes because I don't, you know, I'm happy to just create new things. But a guy named Will Schwalbe, another name for you to remember, Schwalbe said, you know, you, your cooking has a unique point of view. You need to figure it, figure it out and write, write about it. Um, he had some really interesting insight and perspective. And uh, he used to describe my food as he had this this incredible description for it. And I didn't even realize all that was going on. And in the process of writing the book over, you know, through almost three years, I sort of helped. He helped me. I helped me. My cooks and I all worked together to sort of try to create a narrative that 
made sense and explained what we did, which was to take ingredients and flavors from all over the world, bring them together in an interesting way and try to find new places for old ingredients, uh, create these fusions of flavor. And fusion was a word that was being used a lot back then that, uh, you know, are exciting, that have a beginning, middle and an end that, you know, tell a short story that have tension and resolution. And uh, I tried to break it down into a way that I, I could explain it to the home cook, which was, it's super easy, guys. There are four basic flavors, sour, salt, sweet, bitter. They even remind me of colors, you know, the base, the primary colors, red, yellow, blue, green, not actually the primary colors. And so I, I assigned a flavor to a color and try to create this flavor matrix and uh, explain the flavor of each dish using this color matrix. And if you look in the book, you'll see every dish has uh, a bunch of dots next to it to try to visually describe this color matrix. I know it sounded very logical and intuitive at the time. Now I realize it was ridiculously um, exotic and ambitious. And to this day, I'm not sure that you can learn about the flavor of the, the dish by looking at any of my color matrixes, but... People do understand the, the basic flavors now, and they definitely talk about that a lot. And one that was just being talked about at the time was umami. And obviously, we all know that's all anybody talks about anymore. And I do mention it in the book. So, so I do give some credit to my publishers for allowing me to talk about experimental stuff. What was experimental in you know, 97, 98? I shot all the dishes in the basement of my restaurant the photographer sort of moved in for six months. And uh, back then you had to shoot with Polaroids. I remember waiting for the Polaroids to dry. Most of your listeners won't know what I'm talking about. Shake it like uh, a Polaroid picture. Yeah, exactly. Like that. Yeah, 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 exactly. You had to shake it. <laughs> and uh, I remember we used something like 8,000 Polaroids or something like that. It was a very, very long food shoot. It's interesting to me. You have a book that's this, you know, it's been around for this long. How has your cooking changed? Like, do you still use some of these techniques? Do you actually have a go-to? Like, you know, I have a couple of sauces that are my go-tos I can use for bases for lots of things. Um, is there anything like that from this book that you still use today? Great question. I think for a lot of people whose work is part craft and part art, you always have to ask yourself, and I didn't know this back then, but now I definitely know this, you know, who's my audience? Who am I cooking for? Why am I cooking? And that informs what you cook. And so now... I basically separate the world into two people when I'm cooking. Are you, you know, ready to take an adventure and go on a ride with me? Or do you just want comfort food and you'd like to see, you know, my version of carbonara? And most of the people want comfort food right now. I can tell you that without question that, that a lot of people need comfort food in their lives right now. Uh, you know, spaghetti carbonara is the ultimate comfort food. And I, I've never made that dish so much as I have in the last two years. Uh, both in demos and for friends and family. And so if I'm doing comfort food, I pick the, you know, the locked and loaded tried and true dishes that I know people will love like spaghetti carbonara. And if they want to go on a ride, then I get, I get a little more ambitious and I still cook a lot like I did back then, uh, you know, mixing, mixing flavors, mixing ingredients from many, many cultures and using my palate as a guide to, to bring me to a place that I think is exciting and wonderful. But I don't know what you've seen, Chef, but it's people really need to not be challenged by food these days. Tons of Katia Pepe for me. People are asking for it nonstop. Yeah, that's another great one. They love that one. That's in the top five, I think, yeah. You're listening to our conversation with Rocco Despirito. 
You know Rocco. He's a James Beard award-winning chef. He's a frequent host and guest on TV cooking shows. And he's been writing cookbooks for 20 years now. Later in the hour, we'll get to know another rock star chef. But this one is local. We talk with baker Adam Young. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, Rocco Despirito is coming to Connecticut. And we'll talk about his plans for the Sun Wine and Food Fest. And we explore the connection between comfort food and dopamine. You know, the chemical reactions that happen when you when you eat a burger, when you eat pasta, when you eat fried chicken are similar to those that you feel when you're in love or when you eat chocolate. That's why those New Year's diet resolutions are so hard to keep. <laughs> this is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're talking with Chef Rocco Despirito. He'll be in Connecticut the last weekend in January as a featured chef at the Sun Wine and Food Fest at Mohegan Sun. And our very own Plum is a featured chef, too. In our first segment, we talked with Rocco about how he got his start in the food world at age 11, working at a pizzeria in Queens. And we talked about the philosophy behind his very first cookbook, Flavor, which was published almost 20 years ago. What's Rocco cooking for folks lately? Well, lots of comfort food. When you talk about comfort food, it resonates for me because I know that you've often talked about your own cooking as an antidepressant. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because that is kind of a through line, I think, pre-pandemic for you. Sure. Uh, Well, I think we all know now what happens chemically when we eat food. When I wrote this book, we were just starting to understand about, you know, what serotonin was and dopamine was and chemicals in your brain firing depending on what you're eating and uh, now there's so much science out there and, and so much experience there's no question that the foods you eat create certain feelings for, for you and uh, comfort food is comfort food because the chemical reactions that happen when you when you eat a burger when you eat pasta when you eat fried chicken uh, are similar to those that you feel when you're in love or when you eat chocolate and other pleasurable activities. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, And, you know, the amount of dopamine released when you eat chocolate, when you're in love, when you eat pasta can be measured now. And some of these comfort foods release high levels of dopamine. Another way to get dopamine released is to do a cold plunge. Have you guys seen how everyone's posting these Mm -hmm. polar bear plunges now? Terrible idea. Terrible. Apparently, that's a really good way to get a ton of dopamine released. And uh, I'll stick with the spaghetti carbonara. But, Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Uh, everybody's facing <laughs> dopamine, right? This is what everybody wants, free dopamine uh, without having to take outside substances. So food is an outside substance that can act as an antidepressant. But it worked on two levels for me as a kid with raging ADHD, undiagnosed. It was very, very important for me to be occupied by something that was captivating, you know, th- that captured all of my attention, used up all of my energy every single day. Cooking was definitely the perfect solve for that. It's the perfect solve for anyone who has too much energy. It'll use up all your energy and then some very quickly, and you'll be happy to do it. If, you, if, you, if you're a person who needs a lot of you know, stuff to do and you can't just sit quietly with yourself in a room, uh, sometimes cooking is a great way to use up that energy. So it worked for me therapeutically on two levels. One, because food, of course, is wonderful to eat and helps you feel good, makes you feel good, just like drugs and other substances. But also the work made me feel good 
and helped me get through a lot of um, uncertain times uh, because the work was very powerful and very, uh, it felt very important to me. It felt, you know, obviously we're feeding people, which is probably one of the greatest gestures you, you can make when you, when you care about someone, whether they're strangers or friends or family or not, cooking for someone is without question a very, very powerful way to say that they matter, that they mean something, they have value in the world. And uh, it was also a way for me to, you know, feel uh, useful and uh, like I was learning and like I was progressing because there's always something new to learn in cooking. Try to imagine a world pre-YouTube if you can. Think about that for a second. There was a time where you actually had to go do the work to learn the craft for anyone under 30, that's going to sound preposterous, uh, but it's true. You had to go to a place where the craft was, you know, executed every day. You had to beg to get a job and be useful and be valuable and be really cool and be fun to be around. And uh, people would then at some point start teaching you how to do this work. And so that that process was great for me as a kid and as a young adult and, and, and even as an adult. As I was listening to you talk about... Um the very act of cooking for other people and what what emotions that sparks within you. Do you feel that that applies to cooking for yourself as well? Because as I've followed your journey professionally, I've seen your health journey and it's it's been remarkable and I've tried to implore it in my own life. But how does that idea of cooking for other people and what that brings to you, does that also apply, do you think, when you cook for yourself? Well, I, I, I talk about it extensively. Cooking is one of the kindest acts. And when you cook for yourself, you're making choices for yourself that are always going to be better than other people will make for you. So for sure, it's a great way to take care of yourself. And if you, for those of you out there who are thinking, I can't you know, get my hands on great, healthy food. I can't. It's so hard for me to, to make better choices. The first thing you have to do is learn how to cook something for yourself and, and eat some homemade food. Even if you're making comfort food or junk food at home, there are so many chemicals and preservatives and, and uh, methods of, you know, pasteurization and sealing and, and, oh my God, packaging that happen to our food, our commercially made food that you would never, ever choose or be able to duplicate at home that are harmful, that are not adaptive. So cooking for yourself is definitely a way to be kind to yourself. It's definitely a form of self-care. And uh, without without question, is super adaptive and something people should practice every day. I think, unfortunately, we're getting we're getting farther and farther away from that. I think people are cooking, even during the pandemic. Somehow, people are cooking less than they were before because you know delivery foods exploded even more. And uh, if you can imagine that, and so people are getting food delivered two three times a day now, at least in New York City, from what I've seen and experienced. They were homemaking banana bread. They were perfecting their banana bread. But everything else they yes. were ordering out. <laughs> yes, yes. And their sourdough. Their sourdough in a Dutch oven. That's right. Yeah. So the, so what's happening is a lot of people are cooking for entertainment now. And, and and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's wonderful. And I'm glad the Food Network has been there to teach people how to cook at home. But I, I don't think it's I don't think people are um, making it part of their everyday routine. I think they're using what they've learned about cooking as an as a form of entertainment, as a way to create content for their IG, you know, uh, which is all good. And that's certainly better than not cooking at all. But if you could take it a little farther and, and cook a few meals a week or a few meals a day, I think that would be a way to be the kindest to yourself and to your family. Well, Chef, we got a fun event coming up at the end of the month, the Mohegan Sun Food and Wine Fest. You're a staple there. Connecticut loves you. 
I heard you tell a story about uh, coming to do Sun Food and Wine Fest and then right back to the restaurant in New York. And we're just hoping it's because everybody loves you here. That's, that's what I'm hoping for. I hope you don't have to do that again. <laughs> uh, yeah, a few years ago, I had to do that. Uh, I was opening a restaurant and I had to go right back. And it's funny because you make those decisions at the time and then a pandemic happens and, you, and you're wondering why you took things so seriously. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, I, I was like sort of rushed back and forth. And uh, it turns out it probably would have been fine if I didn't go back. But this year, <laughs> this year, I'm coming uh, early. I'm leaving late. I'm going to stay until they kick me out. But I'm super excited uh, about Mohegan Sun because they do a couple of things that a lot of festivals don't do, which is one, they they really throw down the red carpet for chefs. They make us feel super comfortable. They treat us like, like honored guests, and we get to have a really good time. In addition to, of course, cooking the food and doing the events, which are all, you know, all happen in a really lively casino atmosphere. So they're always fun. They always have great bands there. So almost every year I run into a legend that I've loved for 20 years, you know, which is a great part of the fun. Uh, and the, the their array of chefs is incredible. Chef Plum, you'll be there, right? Yes, sir. I'll be there, too. Manit Chawan will be there. Michael Simon will be there. Uh, Robert Irvine. Irvine, uh, yeah. So many great chefs. Yeah. It, it's like a big family reunion, it feels like, or a high school reunion. I mean, you have all these amazing chefs making delicious dishes. You can come taste them all. Uh, like Chef said, the casino atmosphere. It's like a big party all weekend. And it's my favorite, absolute favorite event of the year. Uh, chef, we're both doing Celebrity Chef Dine Around. Great event. What are you making? It is super fun. And the people who come are the perfect blend of culinary aficionados or aficionados to be or like have become a foodie on their to-do list and just really chill, cool people who who have their expectations in the right place. Yeah. It's very hard to do that when you go to a food festival because I think, you know, it's hyped up so much that when you get there, sometimes you're expecting, uh, you know, like a three-star Michelin Monaco experience. And it's really not like that at food festivals. It's much more casual and much more fun. And the people who come to this particular one are ready to have fun and have good food. Uh, and I think in that order, which is is great for us because um, chefs are a little, little loony and we like <laughs> to, you know, control things and make things as perfect as possible at all times. And so when you're dealing with really chill people who understand it's just, it's all a bit of fun. Uh, it makes it a lot easier for us. I'm making a uh, duck and mayatake mushroom lasagna. Oh. So nothing crazy there. When I say I'm making, I mean, Chef Tammy is making. Uh, <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> Chef Tammy is going to make 10,000 portions of a dish that I've made, you know, 100 portions of before. Uh, chef Tammy is the executive chef now, I think, right? She's a executive chef in banquets, man. Shout out to her. She is. A, she's a champion. Yeah. Chef Tammy is the reason the food festival is so good because she rocks it and she makes sure that everybody's set up and doing well. And she knows the kitchens and it's a big place that I get lost in all the time. So I love that you talk about a duck mushroom lasagna affair. Nothing too crazy. <laughs> Nothing too Nothing fancy. Nothing crazy. Yes, it's easy. Easy. Oh, yeah. Easy peasy. Porridge, mushrooms. No big deal. Right? No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds amazing. I can't wait to give it a try. Are you doing a demo too as well on the stage? I'm not doing a demo this year. I'm doing a bourbon tasting, I believe, on the Friday, Friday night. Yeah. I can't wait to be a part of that. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. I uh, think Manit is doing a demo, she which is. is always fun. Manit Chahuan. I'm doing one, and I'm hosting the one of the stages, too. Oh, great. And I'm doing the dining awesome. round. Awesome. What are you demoing? 
Uh, we're gonna do some. Uh, we're gonna make some really easy, super simple, like chicken mole tacos. Ooh, easy at home. Mole. We're gonna make. That's... We're gonna make tortillas. I'll throw them at people. You know, make a big scene. Wow, fun. I'm going to be making roast beef and cheese sandwiches for my son who will be at a wrestling tournament in upstate Connecticut. So I will be there in spirit. In spirit only? Oh, that's too bad. You got to go where your son goes. That's great. I was a wrestler in high school. It's a tough life. It sucks. (laughs) And the problem is the better he gets at it, the worse it's for you. I know. More travel. I know. Not because he's my kid, but he is very good. Yeah. So you're going to be doing a lot of traveling. And wrestlers eat a lot, so make a lot of roast I was going to say, they burn, burn <laughs> thousand dollars a day. Actually, I should rope you two in. You know, they have these big tournaments, and pre-pandemic, all the families were expected oh, to Boy, look at the meal. look at the time, because Chef. Like you got to get out of here. Long. I was going to say, I don't think my singlet anymore. I don't think I, I have an idea. <laughs> I wrestled 145. I haven't been that weight in a long time. I think my leg weighs 145, Chef. <laughs> Rocco, we really appreciate you taking some time to hang out with us here on Season Chef. We really appreciate you. We hope everyone heads out to Mohegan Sun at the end of the month to see Chef Rocco Despirito making some amazing Bum. lasagna. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know. And we can't wait to taste this lasagna, Chef. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Rocco. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. That was Rocco Despirito. He's a James Beard award-winning chef and the author of 13 books about cooking and wellness. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, you'll hear my conversation with Chef Adam Young of Sift Bakery and Mystic and get our very different tips for making creme brulee at home. You want the contrast between a light texture custard and, of course, that brittle caramelized sugar on top. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're spending the hour getting to know two chefs you'll be lucky enough to see in real life later this month at the Sun Wine and Food Fest at Mohegan Sun. Our next guest is Chef Adam Young. Adam opened Sift Bake Shop in Mystic in 2016. In 2020, Sift expanded to include Mix, a seasonal rooftop cocktail bar that got a lot of attention last summer. Adam also owns Young Buns Donuts. In 2018, Adam won season two of Food Network's Best Baker in America. Imagine that, the best baker in America, right here in our little state. Chef Plum talked with Adam about his culinary journey and how he discovered a love for baking after an internship mix-up. Chef Adam Young, welcome to Seasoned. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. We appreciate you taking the time, man. I know you're a baker, so, I mean, actually, your day is probably just ending now. Who knows? I don't know. You guys, you don't sleep or something. You work like vampire hours. I don't quite understand it. <laughs> you know, after five or six years, it's gotten a little bit better. We've got a great team, amazing bakers. But we still, I still get here pretty early in the morning and uh, still, still some very long days. Well, that's kind of your thing, like your relentless dedication to that. One of the things you're known for. I mean, do you, do you really start every single day at 3 a.m.? So now the uh, Sip Bakery has gotten to be a 24-hour-a-day operation. So we run it in three shifts. No way. And then, yeah, so we have, uh, you know, the bread bakers and the croissant bakers start first thing in the morning. They come in the earliest, and then we stagger in the team kind of throughout the day. You know, a lot of the prep happens for the, for the following day in the afternoon. So I usually roll in here around 5 or 6 o'clock, an hour before opening, make sure everything's looking the way it's supposed to look. And, you know, and, um, and then we're, we're open for the day. And that's five or six o'clock in the morning. And I'm sure your your bakers there look at you like, oh, there's chef and his banker's hours. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> yeah, there's no there's no shortage of uh, smack talking in the kitchen for sure, you know. But uh, <laughs> of course not. You know, but it's been you know wonderful to have the team. We've got some real longevity downstairs and some real real talent from all over the place, and and I'm very pleased with how things are going. And it's it's nice to see the kind of progression, you know, and and be able to deliver kind of a quality product and and consistently with especially you know with the current climate that it is you know in the world and you know there's a lot of challenges but you know we're thankful to be able to have a team who's still inspired still excited to come to work and, and work really really hard for us and, and and keep in mind the guest experience first and foremost hey every new day is exciting right we never know what's yeah. happening tomorrow <laughs> that's for sure hey i was i was interested to find out uh when i was we were doing research on you i didn't know you grew up in a dairy farm in vermont i sure did that kind of help your work ethic with, you know, being a baker and working your butt off? 100%. And, you know, what I tell people is we lived sustainably 20 years before it was cool. And we did it out of necessity. My parents worked extremely hard. That's I, you know, I attribute a lot of my work ethic to them. And, and we did it because there was frankly no other alternative. You know, we, we lived off the animals and the products and the produce and the dairy that we uh, created from when I was a little boy until I became a teenager and started working in restaurants. So, I mean, it was just, I didn't know anything else. I just thought there was no, you know, there was no pre-made products in my house. There was, I never had a Pop-Tart until I was like 20 years old in culinary school, you know? So, wow. <laughs> but just things like that, you know, but if you don't know anything else, you just think that's how it's supposed to be. And I'm very thankful for that every day because it gave me, it gave me a real, real life indication of what, what it means to work. And that directly translates to our industry and um, an appreciation for, Obviously, the farmers and vendors and cultivators, you know, everybody who contributes to our food and beverage operations that are very much behind the scenes and don't get the credit that they should have. The bake shop, you have to experience it fully to appreciate it. But can you describe what people might see on a typical day when they walk into the panoramic light filled <laughs> space in Mystic? Like what, what, what's in the case? So we have a pretty diverse menu. We've got um, our signature signature croissants. There's about a dozen different flavors and techniques that we use. Um, everything from you know the quintessential uh, staples, you know the, the the chocolate, the plain, the ham and cheese, and then we do some kind of more uh, unique items. You know, in the spring we do like a buttermilk and blackberry croissant. We do you know lemon lavender, a, a base, all pistachio, all types of different flavors. And they create something cool for the guests, and it also creates a cool experience for the bakers as well. You know, it's not the run of the mill. It's not that, you know, it's something that's unique and keeps them engaged and motivated. That's what I was gonna say. That's important. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, especially if you want to attract great talent. Um, and then we have, you know, the entremet case, the petit gâteau case, which is kind of like the flashy super technique involved, like a mirror glazed entremets and and we like to do a nice balance of modern and classical stuff. So there's everything from like Saint Honoré to Opera to macaron frambois with lychee and rose water to some more modern items you know we have this, what we call the planet pistachio which is a pistachio looks like a planet with you know rhubarb and sheep's milk and that sort of thing so just, again trying to keep a nice balance of traditional stuff and then um some things that are kind of a little more modern and and you know are something that you may not see everywhere we do these enormous cookies they're like a frisbee they're like the size of your head right they're just they're just huge right love it and uh we do a big variety of cookies, everything from like a gluten-free ginger molasses to this chocolate walnut sea salt to oatmeal blueberry. I mean, and these are things that rotate all the time. We try to keep do a seasonal quarterly rotation. And then whenever any of the staff has ideas, we encourage them. We just run it. It's not the Adam Young show. It's very much a collective effort. 
And uh, we encourage all the bakers, if someone has a new idea, if the baristas have a new latte idea, just go ahead and do it, you know, have some creative freedom. And, and I think it gives them a sense of value. Talk a little bit about your culinary journey with our listeners. Sure. Have you always been into baking? No, actually, a little known secret. I never went to pastry school, oddly enough. Uh, I went to culinary school before they started offering pastry programs. And uh, I left home uh, when I was young. I graduated high school a little early. And I went straight. I, and I had worked since I was, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13, 12 years old as a dishwasher. And did the normal you know, kind of migration through the kitchen stations from dishwasher to prep cook to butchery and garmiche and all that stuff. So when I went to culinary school, I had a pretty good idea of the sense of work ethic and the sense of self-discipline and, you know, a very minimal foundation of, of technique and skill set. So I think I, I was pretty well set up for culinary school. I went to the New England Culinary Institute. It was a fantastic program um, at the time located in Montpelier, Vermont. And it was no more than just, frankly, a series of for-profit butcher shops, restaurants, bakeries. You know? So it gave you a real serious, firm depiction of what the industry really looks like. So graduated from New England Culinary Institute uh, with a degree in culinary. And then I went to work for this French master chef in New Orleans. His name was Rene Bajou. And one of the better chefs in the city, great reputation, the great rest, couple of great restaurants and um, very, very focused, massive brigade and um, really exciting place to work when you're 19 years old. Just so people know, he says massive brigade. What he's talking about is that's the amount of like cooks and prep cooks and dishwashers in the kitchen. In the culinary world, the brigade is the team in the kitchen. Yep. So anyway... Growing up in Vermont and rural, you know, dairy farm, uh, moving to downtown New Orleans is <laughs> quite, quite the culture shock at 19. But, um, you know, the hotel was gracious enough to put me up for a few days. I moved down there with, you know, less than a suitcase and I with just my whites and my knives in it, basically, and, and um, showed up for work the first day. And I had this lined up for a few months. And I, can, I remember the sous chef greeting me at the back loading dock. And he's like, well, who are you? And I'm like, well, I'm Adam, you know, I'm your, I'm your newest culinary intern. He's like, we have absolutely, you know, no reference to you. No, there's not, I'm like, oh, what are you talking no. about? You know, I had this whole thing. Like that. So he's like, yeah, well, he's like, you can work here, but the bake shop needs help. We don't need any help on the line. <laughs> so <laughs> as a, as a chef and, and you know, you're coming in there, they said you can work in the bake shop. I'm sure your eyes got big as golf balls. You want to know what? <laughs> oh yeah, totally. No, and that was, and that's not what I had intended. I wanted to be a chef, you know, and I wanted to, I wanted the glory that comes along with working on the line and all that, that good stuff. And, and the bakery was like, great, you know, I've got to like make big breakfast pastries and scoop muffins and stuff. And it just wasn't appealing to me. So anyway, I started and they had this amazing pastry chef. She was fabulous. Her name was Joy Jessup. She knew I was a little bit hesitant. And she took me under her wing. She really pushed me hard. And she, I, I learned a lot of amazing fundamental techniques and started to really fall in love with the world of pastry. You know, and I explained it to everybody. I said, listen, you know, savory cooking is very, very intuitive. You know, you can season, you can manipulate, you can change things. You can kind of make it your own. Whereas pastry is like, controlled variables, same result every time. There's not a lot of room for error. And that style of working, it became really appealing to me, you know, and I still love to cook savory, but really pastry, how the ingredients work together from a functionality standpoint, as, as well as a flavor standpoint, you know, is something that's really, really interesting to me. 
and something since then I've pursued specifically pastry jobs to kind of follow up and, and build my arsenal of um, experience. So that was kind of the pivotal moment for me when I say, you know, 19, 20 years old, and I was kind of by chance thrown into the pastry industry and just fell in love with it. That's great. Um, from there, I worked in all different types of venues, everything from super fine dining, like restaurants in Washington, D.C., down to Palm Beach in Florida, I worked at a country club there for a while, and then uh, for about four or five years, and then moved back to New England to open a place in Rhode Island called the Ocean House, which is this massive, super luxe, five-star, but you name it, they've got every accolade out there, right? And I was on the opening team in 2010 as the head pastry chef. 25 years old. I had no business having that job. Certainly was not qualified to do it, but I made it my own and was there for about five years previous to uh, to opening SIFT here. So good gig. So that's kind of my, my issue. It was a great gig and it opened a lot of doors. And, and you know, I, I attribute a lot of our success here to my experience there. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. You know, so, sometimes you got to just take that jump, whether whether you feel like you deserve it, you're, you're ready for it, you have the experience for it, just take the leap and let's hope you can swim. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I certainly never would have hired me, but they took a chance and they actually ended up working out well in everyone's favor, I think. So, uh, but yeah, and, you know, we've, we've had SIFT here for about six years. And uh, within the past couple, we've been able to really kind of build on our own little hospitality uh, overarching brand, right? And so we've added Mix, the cocktail bar on the roof, which has been wonderful and allows me to dabble back in the savory a little bit. Young Buns Donuts, the chocolate company, which is uh, going from strictly e-commerce to brick and mortar soon. Um, and then we've got another sift over in Washville. So this, we're, we're busy. We've got a lot going on. Well, I was about to ask you that because in a time when, you know, mom and pop shops have kind of had to scale back or put plans on hold, you've been able to expand, which is really cool to see. How did the donut shot come about? <laughs> and what's the secret to making this stuff happen? It was one of those things where we did it out of necessity. Uh, you know, when the pandemic first hit, everyone took massive financial hits. And um, we had, frankly, more employees than jobs. So that piece of real estate just happened to come up right across the street from SIFT on Main Street. And uh, we did a quick renovation and created some more jobs. So, so it kind of helped folks that I didn't have the money or the funds or the, or the business coming in to keep employed. It allowed us to not have to lay anybody off. That's fantastic, man. So now because of all that hard work and success and Food Network appearances, we haven't even talked about that yet, but all that stuff. You're actually uh, get to be one of the celebrity chefs featured at Mohegan Sun's Food and Wine Fest coming up at the end of the month. Yes. And, uh, uh, I'm there as well. We're going to have a great time. And I'm looking really close. I'm, I'm, I can't wait for this creme brulee you're making. And, uh, <laughs> I recommend you hide them because I move very quickly for a large gentleman. I can grab them very fast. <laughs> oh, I hope to welcome you to the table here. <laughs> no, it's great. And it's great to be a part of that. And it's great to be recognized, as I'm sure you know, you, you feel very much the same way. It's nice to be recognized with that caliber of folk and, and really be able to showcase your talents and put your best foot forward. The, the creme brulee we're doing, so basically it's it's kind of like an inverted creme brulee that we set with some different gelling agents like agar. It, it, we call it the virtual creme brulee, but it's basically just an inverted creme brulee that is firm enough to slice into batons. Okay. Right? We caramelize the top the same way, and that goes with like these big white chocolate tempered curls, uh, some, some different olive oil powder or white chocolate powder that we just make with like maltodextrin. Olive oil powder? Yes. So we use a, a tapioca starch called tapioca maltodextrin, and we use that for a lot of different sweet and savory applications. So it, it allows you to turn fats into powders, right? And then you put the powder in your mouth, it mixes with the enzymes in your saliva, it turns back into a fat again. Pretty cool stuff. But we like to mess around with a lot of that type of thing at the bakery. 
That's awesome. And I, I tell you what, you're really making my creme brulees feel not nearly as cool, Chef. I had uh, oh. <laughs> th- this past summer, I was doing creme brulee of the weekend as a private chef with my client out in the Hamptons. And cool. she was like, oh my gosh, you're making creme brulees of the weekend. This is incredible. I said, yep, different one every weekend. Well, it's because I figured out, Chef, if I take some ice cream, whatever flavor you want, melt it down, add an egg yolk, <laughs> bake it in a water bath. <laughs> it's perfect every time. <laughs> and then you just sugar it and caramelize Press it. Up, it's yeah. perfect. <laughs> but that's the difference between a baker and a chef right there. I'm, you know, old shortcut plum and, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, stop. No, 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 no. But you, for the record, my savory cooking sucks. So. <laughs> <laughs> But listen, it's a safe bet that most home cooks aren't making a creme brulee as stunning as what they'll see at the Sun Food and Wine Fest. But can we offer some tips that, you know, for home cooks making a classic creme brulee at home? Sure. I mean, if you want to make real creme brulee, not like I'm just talking about melted ice cream, but it does work. What's truly important is you want to create kind of the seal chamber as you're ba- in a water bath as you're baking your creme brulees, right? So, and I like to use as little eggs as possible. Obviously, the proteins and the eggs coagulate. That's what firms up the custard, Right. So scale back the yolks a little bit, try to make as delicate as the custard as you can. And when we bake them, we bake them in a pan with tight, tight, tight aluminum foil over the top, low and slow, 300, 275 degrees, somewhere in that range with a nice shallow water bath because it creates that steaming chamber inside the pan. The whole objective is you want the contrast between a light textured custard and of course that brittle caramelized sugar on top. Um, we like to use like turbinado sugar and torch on top, nice, thick, crispy, like super caramelized, really rich flavor. That bitterness from that caramelization obviously offsets, you know, the delicate custard, the sweet custard. It's all about balance, you know, balancing textures, balancing hot versus cold, balancing the flavors. Get creative with it. You can use any type of infusion you want when you're when you're warming up your dairy for the custard. You can put lab, all types of different aromatic spices purees, that sort of thing, but really getting the custard as delicate as possible, baking it at a low temperature and in a nice water bath and moist chamber. Yeah, I can't emphasize enough what Chef's talking about there. Breaking it low and slow completely couldn't agree more. And having that water bath is so important. It keeps it, number one, from getting too hot and browning on the bottom, but it also kind of keeps that temperature even all along and adds that moisture in the air, which I think is really important as well. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, it doesn't have to be the super elaborate recipe. If it works for you, great. You know, and if it's three ingredients and you throw it in the oven for half an hour, great. You know, at the end of the day, you're just looking for the end result. Is it is it good? Is it delicious? That's the main question there. Is it delicious? If you can answer yes to that, then you're good to go. Right. Chef, I don't want to spend a long, long time on it, but I think it's important to point out, you know, you've done had some success on Food Network. And I like to think that you kind of come from the same school of thought as I have. These successes that we have, being able to work, do things on television or do things on radio, uh, they're a byproduct of a lot of hard work to get there. you know, and it's kind of a double-edged sword to me as someone who's in the industry and has done, you know, fairly well um, and has been able to become, have the opportunity to become successful and the good luck and good fortune. The Food Network, they've given me all these opportunities, but I think it gives people an unrealistic depiction, a very romanticized depiction of what the industry looks like. Absolutely. Before Food Network and still long after, I still clean the grease trap. I still mop the floors. I still receive 18 wheelers full of goods and dairy and have to put it away and schlep all this stuff. It really does not. I think people see the Food Network um, and all the TV stuff in the chops and all that, right? And they think, wow, that guy's got a really glamorous lifestyle. But they don't know the career that led up to that and the career that you still have to maintain after the show airs. 
you know, so, so I, it's, it's wonderful because it's great advertisement for us. It gives us great exposure and I actually really enjoy doing it, but it is, there's a lot that people don't see tons, as you know, on the network, you've won best Baker, right? Best Baker in America. You won that and you judged some shows as well. Yeah. So I think 2018, I won um, best Baker in America. That was wonderful for the shops. It brought us great exposure and, and it was nice to be able to compete against some of those industry pros who like Jean-Francois Suto, who was, who was the executive producer of the Greenbrier. The guy is a legend in our industry. Yeah, yeah. It was nerve wracking, but it was a lot of fun. Adam Young, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and hang out with you here. You're an absolute inspiration to every baker in the state. Pretty sure you probably need to get to bed. Uh, we're getting close to your bedtime here. You're going to be at work in an hour and a half or something <laughs> else. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Season, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Great to talk to you. That was Baker Adam Young. He owns Sift Bake Shop, Mix Rooftop Bar, and Young Buns Donuts in Mystic. The Sun Wine and Food Fest is happening at Mohegan Sun the weekend of January 27th through the 30th. We'll have a link to it on our show page. Just go to ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Tularski. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next week. I like my creme brulee, but his does sound delicious. Mm-hmm.